This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. We're gonna change the system. Think about it. Right now. And that's the way it was. was, was. That's the way it is. Is, is. And it's always changing and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. The world is listening. My guest is Juliana Rose Goldstone. She's a somatic sex educator, birth doula, pleasure activist, psychedelic integration specialist relationship coach, and creator of Boldly Embodied, which supports couples and individuals to connect more deeply with themselves and each other 
through integrating the teachings of somatic sexology and sacred plant medicines into their intimate lives so their relationship can be a source of nourishment and healing for themselves and for the world. So, Juliana, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. It's so great to be here. You say that sex and psychedelics have had the greatest impact in your personal evolution. Could you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I would be happy to. So, as you mentioned, I'm a somatic sex educator, which means and I've been doing that since 2017, which means that I support people to become more connected with their own sexuality and to sort of understand themselves better from the lens of their sexuality. So for me, the way that I actually started doing that was through a very powerful ayahuasca experience that I had. This must have been, let's see, 2010 to the 2009, somewhere around there. And what became really just so obvious to me in this plant medicine ceremony was the way that relational trauma and sexual trauma was really in this way that I wasn't even aware of, was really running my life and sort of influencing the choices that I was making. And once you see something like that, in particularly in the way that it was shown to me in this ayahuasca ceremony, you can't unsee it. So suddenly this map of the choices that I was making around partners, how I was sort of engaging in sex at the time and why it felt more harmful than beneficial became really clear to me. And so that kind of put me on the path of the somatic sex education. That's when I started to, so I'm sorry, that must have been actually 2015 that this journey happened because in 2017, I started studying somatic sex education as a way of sort of unwinding my own sexual trauma and sort of understanding like how, how is this relational trauma and the sexual trauma that I have running in my body? How is it kind of running the show of the choices that I'm making? So. I feel that because, you know, psychedelics at the time were still a pretty taboo subject, I didn't actually talk about that connection until quite recently, where, you know, I kind of kept on, you know, people would ask, how did you get here? How did you get here? So, you know, it really happened in a very powerful psychedelic experience that really changed the course of my life. And so that's how I kind of got there. And you know, I will say recently, especially since sort of this, you know, third wave that some people are calling it of the psychedelic space, more and more people are coming to me for sexuality work or support that have had some sort of expanded state experience where they experienced that there was sexual trauma in their body, where they experienced themselves as maybe somebody without it. So these conversations have just become, you know, more out in the open and more people are able to talk about it. I think that's really interesting because I think we all, or at least most of us, have had some kind of sexual trauma related experience, whether it's from direct sexual abuse, violence, or, or shaming in their lives, that psychedelics can reveal these deeply buried traumatic experiences because one of the challenges of 
working with trauma is that they often bury themselves deep inside of us so that we aren't aware of them because it's too painful to be aware of those experiences. And yet psychedelics can and often do reveal that kind of past trauma, particularly ayahuasca. I've, I've heard many stories of ayahuasca and iboga, which are particularly powerful psychedelics. Um, ayahuasca wasn't around or wasn't known when I was doing psychedelics. Um, what drew you to actually go to Peru and, and do ayahuasca to begin with? So my story, it's funny. I actually went to Peru before I had any idea about what ayahuasca was. I went to Ecuador right out of high school, actually. <laughs> it was graduation. I was planning on going to college in New York City. And then I sort of secretly was like, I want to do some traveling. So I found this volunteer program that I applied for. I got the acceptance letter the day of my graduation, told them to announce that <laughs> instead. I just always remember my parents' faces up in the audience, like, wait, you're doing what? You're going where? And so I ended up going down to Ecuador for, I think I was there for six months doing teaching in rural schools there. And then I connected with some friends, with some people who were traveling to Peru, and I sort of was not done traveling yet. So I continued traveling there. And as soon as I got to Cusco, I just felt like this is a place that I want to stay for a while. And so I actually ended up learning how to make and sell jewelry on the street. So I was, I was you know, traveling around as an artisan for a good couple of years. Uh, and then I met my first son's father and just, you know, fell in love and stayed there. But I didn't actually do ayahuasca until much later. I had heard about it. I knew, you know, if you live in Peru, it's certainly in the culture and the stories and just the fabric of life. But I didn't really have a sense of like what it was and why it was so profound until later. And I think it, that was also before, you know, Westerners really started coming down there to do ayahuasca. It was still sort of, you know, a more quiet scene so I, so I didn't actually go to Peru to do ayahuasca, but, you know, having been traveling back and forth, you know, we're no longer together now, we're separated, but, you know, I bring my son to visit his father in Peru, and we have strong family ties there. And so eventually, so, you know, I think it's time for me to sit with this medicine. And that was many years later, and I had no idea what to expect. Uh, it was incredibly powerful. Had you had any prior experience with psychedelics or or even like childhood mystical experience before that? Yeah, so I had had some experience with psilocybin, very, very small experiences. I feel like that my psychedelic journey didn't really start happening until around, you know, 2015. And then, you know, 2015 until now, I've really been diving deep onto the onto the medicine path for myself. Mystical experiences as a child, you know, I feel like most of my childhood was a mystical experience. I spent a lot of time in the woods communing with creatures and energies. You know, I had little like fairy house villages and altars set up all over the forest around our house. And I felt 
Yeah, I always felt a connection to the mystical as a child, but didn't actually have a context for what any of that meant kind of growing up in, you know, New Hampshire until I moved to Peru. And I was like, oh, there's actually an entire world and culture and, you know, fabric of stories woven around being this way, which is, I think, why I felt so at home there and wanted to stay. Yeah, this culture that we live in is kind of devoid of of that kind of orientation. Yeah. I know that when I had these strange experiences when I was a kid and I grew up in New York City in the concrete jungle, so I didn't have much connection with nature, but I also didn't have any context within which to understand the experiences I was having. And I didn't talk about those experiences with anyone either. So it wasn't until many years later that things started to integrate through psychedelic experience and also after moving up here to Vermont, spending time in the woods, often just spontaneously getting totally enveloped in the deep silence. Yeah, when I was, I'm remembering now when I was 16, I spent a summer at a meditation retreat center up in northern Vermont in Barnett. And that also had a really profound experience. I mean, I was, I was spending, you know, four hours a day in meditation at 16 and my sort of psychedelic framework. Now I understand that, you know, in deep states of meditation, the brain will release its own form of DMT. And so I did have that experience a few times sitting in, you know, meditation alone. And I had no idea what that was, but I remember just coming down from a meditation and and asking my mentor, like, what, what that? I felt like I had gone through a wormhole down a roller coaster all of a sudden while I was sitting in silence by myself and he sort of like yeah that happens when you meditate for a long time so that, I think that really also kind of set some foundations for like having some skills to navigate psychedelics later on yeah it sounds like you have an innate natural orientation into that kind of space I did as well every time I explored a new type of meditation, I would have an experience like that. So in one of your blog posts, you talk about the neurobiological connection or intersection between sex and psychedelics. Could you talk more about that? Yes. Oh, I love talking about this. So the cascade of hormones that are released when we are in a sexual encounter are similar and or the same as the pathways that psychedelics work with. So, you know, classical psychedelics really work with the serotonin system. And when we are in, you know, deep sexual erotic trance, we are releasing serotonin, we're releasing the chemical of connection, oxytocin, or even, you know, releasing dopamine, So there's the same sort of cascade of hormones that connect us with ourselves and others sexually. These are the same hormones that are being released when we're having a psychedelic experience where we feel more connected with ourselves and perhaps, you know, the (laughs) the nature or the planet. These are all the hormones of connection and they happen during sex and they happen during psychedelic experiences. There's a tremendous, tremendous, almost infinite range of psychedelic experience. So there's no 
one way of characterizing a psychedelic experience. So for people who haven't had a psychedelic experience or perhaps have only had one or two, it may be really difficult to imagine the terrain of possibility there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting when somebody will ask me that question, you know, maybe they haven't had a psychedelic experience before or, you know, what is it like to sort of lose yourself in that way, which is what psychedelics can offer. Oftentimes I will liken it to has there been a time or a sexual experience where you felt, you know, almost outside of yourself and connected to something bigger than yourself that could offer a framework and and vice versa, you know, whether it's with a partner or with yourself, those hormones or that system is working in similar ways. And of course, yes, everybody's psychedelic experiences are super different. And, you know, one person's psychedelic experience can range all over the place. But, you know, the serotonin system is still involved, which which sort of creates a, a certain experience, a certain, yeah, a certain feeling. And you wrote that who we are able to let ourselves become while in the throes of sexual ecstasy or during a psychedelic journey opens the way for neuroplasticity and the rewiring of old patterns and the resolution of trauma and the birth of a new and freer version of ourselves. That's a really juicy, juicy line. Yeah, you know, I think that who we allow ourselves to become, that's sort of the key. You know, who, who do we think that we are allowed to be in the world? And, you know, a really ecstatic sexual experience can expand those boundaries, as well as, you know, certain psychedelic experiences can expand those boundaries. And then it becomes the, the integration work of both to sort of live into those possibilities. And that's where, you know, I think that there can be so much possibility when we're given a glimpse of like, oh, this is how I can feel and this is who I can be. And why don't I allow myself that more often? And now that I've seen and sort of tasted that possibility, what is the work? And yeah, what are the steps that I need to take to get there, to get back there? Mm -hmm. So talk about the work that you do with people to help them do that work and make those kind of rewiring, reprogramming, repatterning of their old stories and even resolution of old traumas that keep us stuck in old patterns. Yeah, yeah, I would be happy to. So right now, my work around psychedelics really focuses in the integration space. So more and more people, you know, especially as psychedelics and there's just more access to information, more people are having psychedelic experiences with themselves or with their partners. And so I really focus on the integration And that's what I just spoke to before. You know, now that you've had this experience together, how do you continue to integrate it into your lives? How do you, what are some practices? What are some changes that you can make in your relationship with each other and with yourself to sort of continue to feed that experience and those insights that you had? So I found that somatic sex education is a really good integration tool because somatic sex education is body-based, pleasure-centered 
you know, somatic education around sexuality. How does your trauma interact with your pleasure? How does, these are some of the questions that, you know, I sort of center my work around. How does that interact with your boundaries? How comfortable are you with your boundaries? Do you have sort of a somatic sense of what a yes and a no even feels like in your body? How comfortable are you talking about your desires with your partner? So I work mostly with couples. Oftentimes a couple will experience new ways of communicating boundaries, new ways of communicating desires, maybe expand their vision of what they even thought was possible in their relationship to begin with during a psychedelic experience. And then, you know, somatic sex ed can really ground that into some practices for them around, you know, untangling the big knot that a lot of us carry around when it comes to our sexuality around, you know, shame, around, you know, just feeling disconnected from our desires and our boundaries. So, yeah, so I've, I really found that somatic sex ed can be a really supportive integration framework for couples who are on the medicine path together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that brings up two things for me. The first one, of course, is after a psychedelic experience, you know, coming down from that, what we can bring back from it. And you're talking about integrating that experience in a way that we can live it, find a way to actually integrate it into our day-to-day life. And the other thing is that it sounds like somatic sex education is, is a great model for life in general, in terms of our orientation to our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's such a nuanced attention to the nervous system and how it works. And I think it adds on a really important piece of the puzzle for the, you know, trauma work that's already happening. Like there is a lot of really good and thorough research and teachings around trauma, you know, for example, polyvagal theory, how does trauma work with the different branches of the nervous system when we get, you know, stuck into fight or flight or shut down into a freeze state or a fawn state. But what's often left out of the conversation is, you know, what about pleasure? What about joy? What about connection? You know, once we move through those states of trauma, what do we actually want? And I think that somatic sex education really takes that conversation a little bit further into you know, the realms of pleasure and desire. And I think that's really important. Yes, that's reminding me of, of something that is so important that there's that old saying that nature abhors a void, that if you, if you somehow remove the trauma, that if you don't replace it with what it is that you really do want in your life, you might actually just leave a space that will be filled again by a similar kind of trauma. Yeah, and you know, I think that's how psychedelics can come in as such powerful tools in that place. They often, it's almost like there's a possibility of getting a little fast forward preview into, you know, what life might look like and feel like without those same, you know, pathways of trauma that are that are activated. And then we come back into our day to day life. And we need some new tools to kind of continue to work back towards that. But if we don't know it's possible, if we don't know that another possibility exists for us, then 
we can't do the work towards it. Yeah, and that seems to be the great magic of psychedelics is it opens up these completely new doors of possibility that for many people did not exist at all. Yeah. Yeah, Betty Martin, who I just love, who invented the framework of the Wheel of Consent, which I use a lot with my clients around just sort of untangling touch dynamics and consent dynamics. She says, we all have a limit. We all have a pleasure ceiling. We all have a limit to how good we think we're allowed to feel. And I think that, you know, if we are working with trauma and pleasure, psychedelics can kind of raise the ceiling a little bit because you know, they shut down the, or they don't shut it down, but they turn the volume down on the amygdala, which is the guard dog of the brain, you know, that's like always looking for danger and really has our back in this very fierce way, sometimes too much. <laughs> so, you know, I think that there's a, there are more possibilities there when the, when the volumes turn down to, you know, how much pleasure do I actually allow myself and how much do I think that I'm really, how good am I really allowed to feel? Yeah, that makes me think of how in our culture, people have been conditioned to just accept that life kind of sucks because there's so many conditions that we've accepted without question that keep us locked into ways of living that don't feel pleasurable and that don't support, you know, the things that we are truly interested in or passionate about or the dreams that we've had and of course that's so sad but psychedelics have this magical way of blowing those kind of gatekeeper doors off and uh, opening up you know huge horizons of possibility absolutely when i work with couples there's a framework that i use and we sort of work our way around the medicine wheel and where we start is in the east and this is the visionary space you know what do we actually think is possible for ourselves what do we actually think is possible in relationship and that you know we often do some work around you know as humans what we think is possible is what we've seen done that's just kind of how our brain works on the day-to-day -day, right so if we have had you know, very limited and unhealthy models of relationship around us our whole lives, either from, you know, our closest families or media. We don't have an expanded vision of what's actually possible. And so we often hang out in the East there for a while. Like, what do you actually think is possible for your relationship? If you were to kind of, you know, take your relationship out of the model that we've been given in this culture, at least, it's like, what do you actually want? What is, what is this container for you? And so I think that there's, you know, a lot of ways that we can go to these sacred medicines for inspiration there. Mm -hmm. So for some of your clients who haven't yet done psychedelics, but are interested in doing that and doing it with the support of someone, let's say like you, how would you work with them? How would you help prepare them for that kind of experience? Yeah. So like I said, I do preparation and integration work. I don't sit with people currently because I don't live in a place where it's legal to do that. So oftentimes there are guides that will sit with people, but a lot of the clients that I work with are already on the medicine path in some way. 
So either maybe they have traveled to Peru and done medicine there or, you know, traveled to Jamaica and done retreats there, or they've been experimenting, you know, with themselves at home and they feel that they need more support around the integration aspect of things. So the way that I might support somebody who is relatively new to psychedelics. So when I, so I am on call for my clients during their journey and I've actually never had anybody reach out or call me, but I I am available for support. You know, if something gets hairy or something is, you know, something is uncomfortable or scary, or they've gotten into a, a rut or a, you know, into a topic that they feel like they need some support with, I'll be there and I'll be there on the phone or via text. But, you know, I think that there is also, this is one of these things that maybe is a little controversial to say, because I really do support 100% the legalization of psychedelics and the incredible opening of access that is happening through what's happening in the space right now. But I think there's also this leaning towards it only being safe to have these experiences with, you know, a medical provider or in a clinical setting. And I actually don't think that that is entirely true for many people. I think for some people with like severe PTSD or trauma or issues like that, that they're working with, like, yes, that is the absolute appropriate place. But for many people, I think that it kind of decenters them from their own power and choice and agency around, you know, their, their very personal experience with these medicines. And so I think that there's a, there's a balance there. And I try to, I try to walk it carefully. (laughs) So as we're moving towards the legalization and also, you might say the, the medicalization of psychedelics, what do you think might happen in that field because of the way that our medical establishment tends to try and control everything and and then engage the legal system to kind of create a a fear-based monopoly on the whole field yeah it's a good it's a good question and again i just want to say you know i really support what's happening like i really see how you know this is giving access to more people that wouldn't have access to it without it so i don't want to speak negatively but i do see that there is, and I actually just wrote an article about this specifically, that there is a power dynamic present in the medical system in this country that, you know, that we're very used to in some ways around, you know, kind of giving our power to medical providers. And I have some concerns around psychedelics kind of landing in that model within that power dynamic that already exists, you know, because psychedelics aren't you know, psychedelic experiences extend beyond our mental and physical health into the spiritual and into the universal. And those pieces aren't necessarily held always in a clinical setting. And I think they're really important to the integration. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you on on that point. It's sort of like finding a good psychotherapist. You have to find someone who, who you can resonate, who who you feel can support you in doing the level of work that you are interested in doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, you know, just to kind of go back to the somatic sex ed model, you know, one of the things that we're really trained so 
thoroughly in as somatic sex educators is around, you know, not ever taking the power from our clients. And it's amazing how many people want to hand it over because we're trained to do that. <laughs> you know, like, what do you think? What do you think? And I'm always in this conversation of like, well, let me, you know, turn it back to you. And how do you feel about this? And how do you, you know, see yourself? And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from the somatic sex ed model and how we're taught to really like partner with people in their own healing and on their own journey that I think can be, you know, adopted by, by the psychedelic movement as it continues to go forward so that there's, you know, less instances of harm and of unhealthy power dynamics, because unfortunately that is something that happens, you know, in a, in a space like the psychedelic therapy spaces where there is inherently a power dynamic. And if that isn't acknowledged, I think that there's more space for, for some shady things to happen in the shadows. I think it's really important to acknowledge that and to have for any practitioner who's sitting with somebody in that vulnerable state to have a really clear sense of their own shadow work, particularly around sexuality, their own shadow work around power, so they can really hold safe space for the people doing this deep work. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to talk more about the somatic sex education approach to all of that, and in general. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things you know, that we look at, I already mentioned the Wheel of Consent and Betty Martin, which I think is just a super important framework for any practitioner who's, you know, entering into either touch dynamics or healing dynamics to have a sense of. And the central question of the Wheel of Consent, which is something that we're, you know, as somatic sex educators, we're really trained in kind of understanding the nuances of this is who is this interaction for? You know, I ask this all the time, who is this for in any interaction, whether it's a touch interaction, whether it's a conversation, whether it's a session, you know, we as humans all have unmet needs. And unfortunately, you know, oftentimes people in healer positions or in therapist positions sometimes try to meet those unmet needs in, you know, in inappropriate ways. It's not, it's not the dynamic, right? The session isn't for them. So I think that it takes, it takes some deep shadow work to look into like, wow, I was never listened to as a child. I was always silenced or spoken over and it feels really good to have someone listen to me right now. You know, that's a shadow that doesn't have a place in a therapy session or in a somatic sex ed session or in a psychedelic journey session. So really having a sense of your shadows, I think is really important. And that is something that, you know, we, we look at and really talk about a lot in somatic sex education, particularly around our, you know, our sexual shadows, because that's often something that's so taboo. And so, you know, kept in the shadows, we don't talk about it, that the, the shadow side of our sexuality is often kind of lurking under there. And I think it's important to, to talk about it. Yeah, I think that's such a, an important point that because of the lack of openness in our culture to talk about these things, that most of us don't even have the opportunity or realize that we have the opportunity to actually do that kind of work. And even in the realm of psychotherapy, you know, people are traumatized. Part of the effect of the trauma is 
to prevent them from even realizing that they could heal their trauma even in in a therapeutic setting. So this lack of communication, this lack of openness, this this taboo on talking about sexuality and trauma and being vulnerable in general is such an inhibitor. Yeah, I just finished a book by Laura May Northrup called Radical Healership. And I really feel like that is an important text for anybody, you know, any practitioners who are thinking about, you know, sitting with people in medicine space or even working with in the integration space or the sexuality space, right, which are all places where we access like a, a very deep level of vulnerability. I really think anybody planning to work in those spaces should read this book and really guides you into your own shadow work about like, okay, what is my own shadow work that I need to do to be a really safe practitioner? Yeah, I was actually hoping to get to interview her. Awesome. But uh, apparently she she's kind of a workaholic and and, <laughs> and it's really hard to, to get her to do anything like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's pretty busy right now, I imagine. Yeah. There's another area that we could talk about, and that is the connection between religion and capitalism and patriarchy and how they have aligned throughout history to repress the free, open, you know, experience and expression of our true nature, especially, of course, sex and mind-altering psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah, so if we look back in history and we think about, you know, what are the two realms of humanity that have been, you know, the most regulated by laws, it's our access to mind-altering substances and our freedom to express ourselves sexually how we desire. So I think it's really interesting that if you sort of look back in history, like these are always the issues that are sort of, you know, leapfrogging <laughs> over each other. Sometimes one is more permitted than another. And then, you know, the next regime comes in and one is less permitted than the other. So there's always these two conversations of what are we allowed to do with our minds and what are we allowed to do with our bodies? And I think governments are very aware that within those two questions lies, you know, our human sovereignty and power, which is why I believe they have always been controlled in one way or another, as long as there's been, you know, governments around to do that. So I do find that it's really interesting, you know, especially right now, looking at what's going down in the, you know, in the political space. So we are on the verge of legalizing you know, plant medicines and psychedelics in ways that they haven't been in a very long time. And we're also on the verge of taking away sexual rights from, you know, people with uteruses. <laughs> so it's like, okay, here are these two issues again. And I find it really interesting how they, they tend to always be up in one way or another. I'm sure that that's not accidental, you know, it's deliberate. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly seems that way to me. And also it's been supported by this material spiritual split that's embedded in our 
Judeo-Christian culture and supported by the science that has emerged out of that kind of worldview. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that psychedelics does and potentially sexuality, but particularly psychedelics, is that it dissolves those boundaries between the material world and the spiritual world. Could you talk about that experience and how psychedelics can help us do that or have that experience? Yeah. So one of the gifts of our human brains is our ability to have a sense of ourselves as individuals. You know, our sense of ourselves as you know, a thing with a personality and with certain desires and fears and ambitions, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful part of our, you know, the most recent version of our brains and the ones that we carry around in our skulls now. And, you know, it also comes with a certain disconnection from, you know, from all that we are connected to in terms of our more sort of animal natures and our more natural selves. And so I think that when, like I said before, when psychedelics sort of turn down the volume on that part of our brain that's really about individualization, we can sort of have a broader sense of like, oh, we are much more connected than we think, you know, our brains and the way that we experience the world may be much more mycelial than we realize. And when we have that realization, there's so much more possibility for making choices from that place of connection as opposed to from that place of separation and fear. And I think that's what we're really needing more of right now as the world is in the state that it's in, you know, more people realizing like we are so much more connected than we think and the choices and the way that we show up and what we do and how we do it affects so much more than, you know, just our individual selves. And so I almost feel like psychedelics are like the big, they're like the big lens, almost the, the meta understanding of that. And then, you know, how we express our sexuality in a very intimate way with another person is almost like a microcosm of that. You know, how can I be both connected to myself and really intimately connected and aware of my partner? And this is on the, you know, physical, emotional, spiritual level as well. So I think it's almost like, yeah, psychedelics are sort of a, a meta lens for that connected, you know, interconnectedness. And then who we are sexually and how we express ourselves is almost like a little microcosmic lens that we can experience that through how we bring ourselves, our, you know, our most vulnerable, authentic, raw selves and allow that to be received and receive that as well from our, from our partner. Um, yeah, so that's sort of how I see those two connect to that question. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love the mycelial metaphor and how psychedelics open us up to connecting with everything in that, in that kind of mycelial way, which, of course, reflects all of nature, which, of course, we have in our culture separated ourselves from and think that we are superior to and in that process we reject our innate animal nature as well as our spiritual nature and 
that in itself is a profound trauma. There's some really interesting research. If you look at fascia in our bodies, very mycelial, if you look at it, you know, if you look at what fascia actually looks like in the body, it's almost like this web that you can only really see when it's alive. You know, the understanding the fascial system of the body is pretty new because so much of our understanding of the body was through dead bodies, right? And once a body is dead, it's difficult to really see the fascia. But I really see the fascia in the body as a mirroring of the mycelial network underground, right? The mycelial network carries information through the forest from tree to tree to plant. And the fascia of the body can carry information faster than the nervous system, which I think is is fascinating that there's this sort of other type of communication going on through the body that isn't necessarily, you know, between the nerves and the brain. There's another subtler conversation happening. And I think that the more we understand our bodies and the more we understand, you know, the body of the earth, the more I see those connections. That sounds fascinating. I would love for you to talk more about that fascial dynamic. Yeah. So I'm actually in a process of studying scar tissue, which, you know, happens in the fascia right now and understanding ways of manipulating the fascia with touch and attention to remediate scars. So this is part of what I offer in my sexological bodywork sessions where I do hands-on work, you know, and often people have scars in their body that inhibit their sexual function. And so when we understand that a scar is, you know, a biomechanical, a biochemical, an emotional, and, you know, a physical issue, we can really sort of relate to the scar in a different way. And all of that happens through understanding the fascia and how it moves through the body and how it works. So I'm still really, you know, I feel like I'm still pretty new and I'm still a student of this. But being that I am pretty rooted in like the psychedelic metaphor of it all, I'm like, ooh, (laughs) I really see how fascia is so much like the mycelial network underground. You know, if you were to like peel up a piece of the earth, you would see this web of mycelium just running through. And just like if you were to, you know, peel back our skin, we have fascia just running through our entire system. Are you familiar with Liz Cook? No, nope. Oh, I think you would really love her work. Her last name is spelled K-O-C-H, but it's pronounced Cook. And her book, is very short but very very juicy is stalking wild soads oh you know i have heard of her now that you say the name of the book i haven't read the book but it is um definitely on my list thanks for the reminder so let's see what haven't we touched on that we should talk about one thing that i just wanted to mention to sort of bridge you know, connect some dots. I talked a little bit about, you know, some of the possible limitations of, you know, fully medicalizing psychedelics. And one of the reasons that I work with couples is I see the possibility of really teaching couples to hold really good psychedelic space for each other as kind of a bridge between worlds 
and also a really good integration harm reduction practice. So often, you know, an individual will come home from, let's say, you know, an ayahuasca retreat in Peru or a mushroom retreat in Jamaica, and their first stop for integration is their partner. And that can often be where it also gets challenging. So I feel like working with couples while, you know, for better or for worse, in many ways, the way that our society is set up is our, you know, our partner, our couples has kind of taken the place of our larger community. And when we are able to hold good space and good, you know, good integration space for each other as a couple, I think it really helps both the work of the couple and the, the work of individuals to, to thrive in a different way. So I almost see the couple's work as like a bridge between, you know, just being out there on your own, kind of doing, <laughs> doing things and hoping for the best and being, you know, really only doing psychedelics in a medical clinical setting. I think that, you know, with good support and with good education, like couples can hold really good space for each other in a way that a therapist actually can't because they're so intimately connected. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, I would love to hear more about how you guide couples into being able to support each other in direct psychedelic experience, because it's it's almost like training people to sit with each other. And yet they'll, in this case, they'll both be doing the psychedelics together at the same time. Yeah, so we talk a lot about, you know, symbiosis and differentiation. We talk a lot about you know, different couples have different sort of signatures of like how symbiotic slash, you know, the sort of shadow side of symbiosis is codependency, you know, how intertwined are they in that way? And how differentiated are they? Like, is there, is their edge going to be about seeing and respecting each other's individual experience? Or is their edge going to be about, you know, bridging that gap and connecting? So that's one of the things that we look at and we practice, we practice somatic practices around what comes up for you when you sort of take this amount of space from each other physically. You know, we explore with physical proximity, we explore with relational attachment trauma and how that might be sort of informing the way that they are in their relationship because we continue to work on our core attachment needs in our relationships. That is just the arc of how it goes. You know, we start that off with our caregivers and we often continue to work that stuff out in our relationships. So having that clear and having that conversation, I think is a really good place to start around, you know, how they might be able to hold good space for each other. I often will recommend they do journeys together, but they also take turns. Somebody sitting for the other and then they you know maybe the next journey they switch so they also have that experience of you know like i said the wheel of consent who is this for like who's really clarifying the energy like i'm holding space for you and then next time you hold space for me which i think is also just a really good couple's skill to have you know to be able to hold space for each other and to be able to allow our partner to hold space for us there's there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot of juicy work that comes up just in those explorations. So that's one thing. So I was talking about sort of the framework of the medicine wheel. I talked about the East, visioning, 
South is sort of sexuality, fire, pleasure, and then the West is rites of passage. So also recognizing that within every relationship, there are many relationships, right? There are many beginnings and endings and transitions. And it's really important to acknowledge the transitions in a relationship, whether that is a transition of becoming parents or maybe the transition of losing a loved one or the transition of changing relationship agreements or, you know, moving from monogamous to non-monogamous. Like there are all of these possibilities for rites of passage and transitions that often get overlooked that can be really supportive and important to kind of create a psychedelic journey around as well. So we might look at, you know, what are some of the missed transitions? What are some of the missed rites of passage in your relationship? You know, our culture only gives us really the only relational rite of passage that we get is a wedding. Yeah, that's pretty pathetic. Yeah. And you think about all of the transitions that we go through in a relationship, you know, over the years or even over one year, like there's so many different ways that we we show up with each other and it's important to acknowledge those. And one of the uh, transitions is also when a past trauma begins to arise in our consciousness before we are aware of it enough and skillful in working with it enough to prevent it from causing damage. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that often happens I see a pattern that that often happens sort of after the limerence stage of a relationship where, you know, all of the the new relationship energy and all of the exciting hormones and showing up as your very best self all the time, you know, once you've been together for a couple of years and you start deepening into more intimacy, oftentimes then those traumas feel safe to arise and, you know, people can feel like, what's happening this relationship was so good and now everything's falling apart and without that context of you know now you have a field of safety between you to look at this stuff and to work on it so even in psychedelic culture most people talk in terms of individual sessions whether you're doing it alone or whether you're doing it under the guidance i hear very very little about couples journeys and For myself, the most powerful psychedelic experience I've ever had by far was one that I did with my girlfriend at the time, who was just emerging out of a very challenging circumstance in her life. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that there is not much conversation about journeys as couples, although they certainly happen, you know, and this is why I have a monthly integration circle for couples specifically it's online it's by donation and every month it's so wonderful to have a space you know we often talk about what you just said like what we're able to access with our partners can be so profound during a psychedelic experience and there aren't necessarily so many spaces to talk about it so I've just been really loving those groups. It's been a lot of fun and really insightful. And yeah. How could people access that and the other work that you do? Yeah. So the best way right now is to follow me on Instagram. And that's at Boldly Embodied. 
I am in the process of revamping my website, but they can also find me there and that's boldlyembodied.com. But I'm always announcing, you know, I do occasional couples workshops and I always have this monthly by donation couples integration circle. So if they get onto my mailing list via my Instagram account, that'll be a good way to stay in the loop around those things. And again, that was boldly embodied. Yes, at boldly embodied is my Instagram handle. And boldlyembodied.com. They can also check me out there and get onto my mailing list and be informed of happenings. Yeah, your work sounds really fascinating because, again, that's an area that isn't, or psychedelics isn't brought into couples therapy or couples work in general. And you're actually the first person that I've been in contact with who's actually doing that work. I know there are other people doing it, but uh, it's not particularly prevalent in our culture. Yes. Yeah, there are some that I have heard, but certainly not a conversation I hear a lot. So hopefully we'll be hearing it more. And psychedelics, just from my experience alone, just adds so much magical potential for uh, the possibilities of enriching and supporting relationships. Absolutely. Esther Perel, who I adore, she is a wonderful couples therapist. She says that the quality of our relationships ultimately determines the quality of our lives. And I, I have experienced that firsthand. I can see how, you know, being in a evolving, supportive, loving relationship can really, you know, nudge us along in our path. And being in a misaligned, you know, hard relationship can really sort of stymie our growth in our lives. So I, I see psychedelics as a, you know, as a tool to evolve our relationship so that we can, you know, be here and do what we're here to do. Perhaps to end, could you go more deeply and talk more specifically about how psychedelics can support and enrich our relationships directly? Yeah. So psychedelics can give us the opportunity to expand our idea of what we think is possible in relationship, to expand our idea of who we can be with ourselves and with our partners. And then when we have an expanded idea of what's even possible, then we can begin to, you know, with integration support, we can begin to live into those visions. So that's one thing psychedelics can help us to access deeper levels of pleasure and vulnerability around our desires and around our sexuality that may not be accessible when the amygdala is in full guard dog mode. Psychedelics can help us to create rites of passage that were missed in our relationships that are vital to be acknowledged in order for us to continue to move forward and grow and expand. And then lastly, I think psychedelics can really help us to explore and understand our own personal relational attachment traumas and how they're mapping onto our relationships and, and kind of getting in the way of, of that vision of, of who we'd like to be and how we'd like our relationships to feel. So I really see 
psychedelics as offering possibilities and windows into all these parts of ourselves that are not always easily accessible in our waking day-to-day consciousness. And then we get to do the work of finding our way back there in our day-to-day consciousness. And that's, yeah, (laughs) that's the fun part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And getting back to the pleasure side of it, the enjoyment side of it, could you talk about quote unquote recreational use of psychedelics and how perhaps we as a society could be more empowered and better informed to safely access and use psychedelics for our own personal self exploration and enjoyment, you know, free of exterior control and also in a way that could be available and affordable for everyone? I love that. So, you know, we have been doing some version of psychedelic exploration for, you know, thousands of years as humans. This is part of who we are. I've been reading and studying about the Aleutian mysteries. I just spent some time in Greece this past year. And, you know, the Aleutian mysteries probably had a lot to do with ergot-infused wine, which, you know, ergot is what LSD is derived from. So this isn't a new thing. And in terms of recreational use, I think that there is kind of a demonization of recreational use right now. And when it comes to pleasure and the importance of pleasure, I think that there's not enough conversation around self-exploration for the sake of of that alone, (laughs) you know? Life is okay, but it could be better. I feel fine enough, but I could feel better. Like these are actually, you know, important conversations. And, you know, we live in a culture, I think, where it's actually less taboo to talk about trauma and pain and healing than it is to talk about pleasure and fun and rest. So I do think that there is more conversation to be had around, you know, recreational doesn't necessarily mean unsafe or unproductive. You know, obviously, set and setting is really important. We know that doing psychedelic in a setting where you feel unsafe and in a mindset where you're not grounded and clear in what your intentions are can be dangerous. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the same set and setting is going to be the most supportive one for everybody. I know people who like their church was Grateful Dead concerts and that worked for them. And that was very recreational and they received incredible healing and connection and, you know, community through those spaces. So I I am not a purist in you know, recreational looks like this and, you know, real healing looks like this. I'd like to see those conversations happen more and that it's really an individual experience and there isn't one right way. In terms of safety and accessibility, again, we've been doing this since the beginning of time. (laughs) I think that the exploring of our own consciousness in one way or another is part of our human legacy. It's part of our human birthright. And I do think that that can happen in so many different ways and different settings and that many different settings can be supportive to that. And then there's the availability and affordability of these substances. 
Right, which will continue to be, you know, as they become available only through, you know, prescriptions, that conversation is going to change. So that'll be an interesting thing to see, you know. I know many people that grow their own medicines. And, you know, that's certainly one way to continue to have access to at least a few different kinds. But as far as, yeah, affordability and accessibility, I think that's a really big issue to keep in mind as we move forward with this, you know, with the legalization and, and sort of what's happening in the psychedelic space in general. There's a lot of money being pumped into the psychedelic space at the moment for, you know, training programs and retreat centers. And I think that's all really great. And I think it's also important to kind of keep it all in balance and in integrity and keep on checking in with ourselves around that. And one thing we didn't touch on was natural forms versus synthetic forms of psychedelics. Yeah, you know, lately I've been calling them all plant medicines because they do all come from plants or fungi, right? Even LSD is derived from fungi. MDMA is derived from sassafras. So I know for me, I like to keep that connection to nature. And yes, they've been manipulated and tampered with by humans in labs to, you know, make them more available to our brains in certain ways. But ultimately, you know, they come from nature. So I think it's important to sort of keep that in mind. And yeah, different people have different relationships with whether something has been synthesized in the lab or whether something, you know, grew out of their backyard. So that's really, I think, a personal preference. Mm-hmm. And perhaps happenstance as my most powerful psychedelic experience was actually with LSD, but I was very fortunate to be using a pure form of it. Yeah. And I just always tell people like buy a test kit. If you are exploring psychedelics at all, and you're exploring psychedelics that, you know, come from a lab, like buy a test kit from dance safe or bunk police and make that part of your practice because it is really important to know what's going in your body and there are some chemicals out there that you do not want yep i didn't know that there were test kits available to regular folks like us yeah no they they range anywhere from like 20 to maybe a hundred dollars and there are kits that test lsd there are kits that test mdma there's kits that test you know, everything you might ever want to put in your body. And then I really recommend having those, or at least, you know, somebody in the community to have one because one test kit goes a long way. So I'm curious about what they actually test. Do they test the purity of the substance or do they test for the common things that they're cut with? Both. So it's usually a two-step process. It'll test if the substance that you're wanting is actually present. And then it will test for the presence of, you know, the most common substances that it might be cut with to make sure that you're actually ingesting what you think you are and that you're not ingesting anything that you don't want to be. And they're probably focusing on the most dangerous things. Yeah, fentanyl, you know, those types of things. So there's actually quite a wide range. I'm not sure right now. I don't have it in front of me, you know, all the things that they test for, but it's quite a lot of things actually. Well, that's good to know, because a big part of set and setting is to feel safe to begin with. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, sometimes, as you know, an LSD experience can get a little hairy. And when you know, like, okay, I tested this. I know it's safe. I know that this is, like, not harming me. It's just a little hard right now. And that can really be a big help with their with their mindset. Which also reminds me that with many psychedelic experiences, they often begin with a phase of going through a kind of a challenge, a kind of initiatory rite of passage, which is often not pleasant. Yeah. Yeah, we use the template of the hero's journey, you know, both for the journey itself, but also for the integration process and the preparation process. And there is, on the hero's journey, there is the part where there's an uncomfortable rub. It's the initiation. You know, the hero has to leave home. The hero loses somebody. It becomes less comfortable to stay put than to go out into the unknown. And that's the, that's the initiation process. And that's often what we experience is that resistance, that discomfort of resistance of like, oh boy, here we go from the familiar to the unfamiliar. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the initial shift from the familiar to the unfamiliar can be very disturbing or surprising in a way that's very uncomfortable. And then if we resist that, that just compounds the discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where I think, you know, solid preparation support, you know, to just know that that is part of the experience, to have some education around that can be really supportive. And then for partners to be able to support each other through that, to know, you know, okay, here's how I feel about shifting states. Here's how you feel about shifting states. One partner might be much more comfortable with the unknown than the other and having sort of that education of like, going from waking day consciousness into expanded consciousness and then back again, those doorways, those portals can be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And in the Tibetan tradition, they have the, uh, the Tibetan book of the dead, which tries to serve as a guide for people so that, you know, after they die, they have a, they have a sense of what they might encounter. And it could be very beneficial for people to understand that there will be a, a similar kind of, transitional phase in the uh, psychedelic journey. Absolutely. Isn't there, was it Timothy Leary that wrote a book, like the psychedelic experience as the book of the dead? Or I haven't read it, but I know that there is a book of the dead translated for psychedelic experiences somewhere out there. I've never heard of that, but it sounds like a very logical thing to connect. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. The psychedelic experience is a huge transition, and that's something that we generally don't like in our culture. We try to stay very safe, secure within our own little kitty litter boxes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. So I worked in the birth space for years before I transitioned into sexuality work and then psychedelic work, and it's all very related, you know, but our first you know, our first experience when we are born into this world is a psychedelic experience. You know, both mother and baby produce small amounts of DMT, not to mention all of the incredible psychedelic hormones that a mother's body is producing while she's going through this intense experience. So it's one of our first experiences that we have before we even take our first breath. So I think that's an interesting context. Like it's, 
it's not entirely foreign, but we do forget. And and death as well, you know, when we when we leave this body, there are also, you know, there's an incredible flood of hormones that helps us to transition out. So similarly, you know, we're born and we die. And those are those are by nature psychedelic experiences. Yeah, it's all fascinating, all those dynamics. Juliana, it's been wonderful to talk with you. So great to talk with you. Such a pleasure. Yeah. So my guest has been Juliana Rose Goldstone. She's a somatic sex educator, birth doula, pleasure activist, psychedelic integration specialist, relationship coach, and creator of Boldly Embodied, which supports couples and individuals to connect more deeply with themselves and each other through integrating the teachings of somatic sexology and sacred plant medicines into their intimate lives so that their relationships can be a source of nourishment and healing for themselves and the world. And her website is boldlyembodied.com and her Instagram account is at boldlyembodied if you'd like to find out more about her work and connect with her. So again, Juliana, thank you so much for being on the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye.
As we drove past the greenhouse, I saw Gretchen, the downstairs maid, erupt out of the door. She was completely naked but for her high-buttoned shoes, and she ran squealing across the meadow. Behind her, in hot pursuit, came Freddy the groom. He, too, was naked with nothing on but his large rubber boots, and in his right hand he was grasping a particularly rampant erectus delecta. As we drove by the rose garden, I happened to see Harold, the gardener, standing with arms outstretched, gazing up at the sky and howling like a dog. His trousers were in a heap around his ankles, and kneeling before him, completely naked but for her apron, was our large, rather pendulous cook, Helia. And in her mouth she was savoring a rather large, well, you know. As we drove up to the front of the estate, I descended from the carriage, ran up the long steps through the large doors into the great foyer. I took off my hat and along with my gloves and cane, I deposited them in the front closet. Roger, the butler, was lying there on the floor, completely naked, on his back. And seated over him, also completely naked, were the two upstairs maids, Holly and Millie. One was seated over his face, one over his middle, and they were sitting there, staring into each other's eyes, singing a rather plaintive melody. Roger opened his mouth to join in, but was almost immediately mocked. As I walked through the drawing room, I saw my lovely wife, Sybil, lounging lugubriously on the shades. She had on one of her long gowns. She gave me a rather lascivious wink and a smile. And just as I went to walk out the door, I noticed a, an extra pair of feet protruding from beneath her gown that looked suspiciously like those of young Robert, our cook's adolescent son. In the dining room, I saw that the afternoon meal had only just recently been completed. There was still warm food on the table. 
So I immediately divested myself of all my clothes and began to form the mashed potatoes into a, a very erotic-looking shape. Rachel, my secretary from the city, entered at that point. Seeing what I was doing, she divested herself of all her clothes, and then she with a large turkey leg, and me with the mashed potatoes, we... we... Oh, I was so glad to be back in the country again. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. according to plans formulated by the architects of being and appears on the inhabited planets either by direct importation or as a result of the operations of the life carriers of the local universes. These carriers of life are among the most interesting and versatile of the diverse family of universe suns. They are entrusted with designing and carrying creature life to the planetary spheres. And, after planting this life on such new worlds, they remain there for long periods to foster its development. Support your local life carrier. This message has been a public service announcement brought to you by your local universe.